0: Now, the Jewish Passover begins this Saturday night. Our uh, calendars are not always equal in terms of the Jewish Passover and when we hold our Good Friday and Easter services, and that's another story. But uh, the Passover begins this Saturday night on the Jewish calendar. That's March the 27th, begins at sundown, and runs because it kind of uh, uh, backs up to the Feast of Unleavened Bread to our Easter So the total feast will end on Sunday, April the 4th, which is our resurrection or Easter Sunday morning. That will happen at nightfall. During that celebration, at the beginning of that celebration, the Jews practice something called the Seder meal. Seder speaks of order and there's an order with which they do things to commemorate their being freed from Egyptian bondage. And this particular uh, message just happens. You know, we just happen to be, and I didn't plan it this way, at a place where the four cups within the Seder meal are pulled from this passage. So I called my rabbi friend and I said, Rabbi Robert, how did the four cups get pulled from this particular passage, especially Exodus six and seven, six six and seven? Let's read it together. And if you're physically able to stand, let's just read these two verses. Here's what it says, Exodus 6, 6, and 7. And Natalie, if you're back there, you can put up that main slide with the four verses. Say, therefore, Exodus 6, 6, to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. You may be seated. Father, write your holy word on our hearts. Amen. At every Seder, there are four stages to our redemption represented by four cups in the verses that we just read together. There is a fulfillment of these cups in the person of Jesus Christ, and there's application to us as believers. And when I asked Rabbi Robert the question about how the four cups came from this passage, because you don't see cups there, he said it was basically a midrashic interpretation. That is, Jewish commentators looked at Exodus 6 and came up with a commentary that migrated into the Passover meal. Because you don't see the word cup here, but you will see how this applies in just a moment. And it would be like if you read a commentary today, for example, on the book of Romans, and you saw a group of commentators making an interpretation on a passage. That's basically how it came through time and arrived within the Seder meal. And so these particular cups come to the fore, but before we get there, we have a little background work to do. We're gonna pick it up in verse one, and here's what it says. The Lord said to Moses, Exodus 6.1, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for under compulsion, and God said, this is the only way that Pharaoh's gonna let you go, under compulsion, or because of my mighty hand, 6.1, with a strong hand, if you have a new King James, he shall let them go. And under compulsion, he shall drive them out of his land. At the end of chapter five, there was a frustration that happened because they went to the Pharaoh, and the Pharaoh actually increased the workload on the people of Israel. And he bid them to make bricks, remember, without straw. So the people were looking everywhere to try to find the straw that they needed to make the bricks, and they were not to fall one quota short, one brick short of the quota. They were to maintain the same, uh, you know, efficiency that they had done before. The people were frustrated. The burdens increased. They were being beat by the taskmasters. And we drew a spiritual picture in that message, if you were here, that that's how Satan often works in our lives. He distracts us. He puts extra burdens on our backs. Oftentimes when we get a little bit of a taste of freedom, you're a new Christian, and you're beginning to understand this new life, then extra tests or weight come on your back. That just seems to be the way it goes. And Moses was frustrated, and he said, Lord, you know nothing's working here, to paraphrase. Ever since I went to the Pharaoh and did what you told me, things have only gotten worse. You haven't delivered the people at all. You ever prayed like that before? Lord, ever since I became a Christian, Right? <laughs> Everything seemed easy. Now people are mad at me at the office because I took a stand on this topic or that subject. Being a Christian is not easy. It's a blessing, but you often find yourself in the middle of warfare. And I think you can tell that the world is moving away from Christian ideas. Have you noticed? And more and more it's becoming blatant that you're gonna be swimming against the tide as a believer, And Egypt is a type of the world, and the burdens that come on people's backs are a regular uh, occasion of this fallen world. And so God spoke further to Moses, Exodus 6 2, and said to him, I am the Lord. Now, the word Lord there, or the name Lord there, is Yahweh, Y H W H, and this is the foundation. This is where it all starts and where it all ends. I am the Lord. This is the first time, by the way, in Exodus that God says, I am Yahweh. He's given the name to Moses, but this is the first time he's declared it like this. I am the Lord. There is no other. And the, the name Yahweh means I'm the self-existing one. I am who I am. We looked at this in Exodus three fourteen and 15. I am the self-existent God. Everything comes from me. I hold it all together. He is non-contingent, uncreated. He is the creator. And there's an additional thought to his name, and it is this. I will be for you whatever you need in that moment. So it is, I am the self-existing one, but I will also be to you what you need. And in the burning bush, when God shared that with Moses, the bush depicted Israel under the fire of Egyptian bondage, yet not consumed. The bush burned, but it was not consumed. And Moses turned to see this great sight. And that's when God commissioned him and God spoke to him. And to Abraham, God appeared as a traveler because uh, Abraham traveled and sojourned and never really owned any land except, except some burial ground. To Joshua, the Lord appears as a mighty warrior. And to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he comes into the fire. Whatever you need at that given moment, I am the self-existent one, but I will also meet you where you are. And God has done that for me and I'm sure for you so many times. Not always in the timing that I would prefer. Sometimes he stretches us, of course. But I am the Lord is the foundation. This is covenant language. Yahweh is the covenant-keeping God, and he's reminding Moses of who he is and thus what he does. He's the same self-existent eternal God, Yahweh, that appeared to the patriarchs, that made the promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and now they are going to be actualized, and they were even prophesied in Genesis 15, and now actualized under, you could say, the ministry of Moses. God is saying, what I promised, I will fulfill. Sometimes we look at our world, and we look at world conditions, and maybe we read prophecies about the second coming of Christ, and we we could have a little hesitation in our spirit. Is this really going to happen? Are you going to really rule and reign but every promise that God has made in the Bible about the first coming of Christ came to pass. And the, all the prophecies about the second coming of Christ are going to come to pass. I am the Lord. That is my name. I do not lie. I will fulfill my word. That's what God is saying. And I think he's re emphasizing that for Moses. I appeared, look at verse 3, to Abraham. These are the patriarchs, or the ones that came before, to Isaac and Jacob. And I appeared as El Shaddai. That's God Almighty. But my name, Lord, that's Yahweh, verse 3, I did not make, uh, did not make myself known to them by that name. And some scholars believe, because this can be a little confusing, because I think Yahweh is uh, mentioned in Genesis multiple times. So what does this mean? One scholar said he believes this could be in the form of a question. This could be something like this. And by my name, Yahweh, did I not make myself known to them? And then there are other commentators that believe that God is saying, I made myself known as El Shaddai, God Almighty, but I did not reveal the depth of my name. And This is how you can kind of piece this together. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob knew some about me. They got a little taste of who I am, but a further taste and a further revealing of my name will happen in the Exodus. Everybody with me? Through the 10 plagues, through the blood of the Passover lamb, I will reveal more of who I am, my redeeming, powerful hand. Abraham got a promise about land, and he learned a little bit about, obviously, about justification. Uh. You have Isaac and Jacob who God appeared to them in, at very, in various stages of their journey and the promises were reiterated. But do you remember the main promise was of, a, uh, of ancestry, stars, and sand. Remember those were the images? So it would be like the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore, so will your descendants be, and the promise of land, but not the full unfolding of redemption. And really, the full unfolding of redemption is realized for us in the person of Jesus Christ. And so there were types and shadows in the Old Testament that were fulfilled then by Christ in the New. And it could well be that God is saying here, in the revealing of my name as El Shaddai, I didn't reveal everything. And sometimes revelation comes, remember, in stages. And we see that in our Bibles. And so God says, now... In essence, I am making myself known in a new way. I'm going to redeem my people. I'm going to deliver them from bondage. God knows what our greatest need is, and our greatest need is salvation. It is deliverance. It is to know the one who delivers us from our bondage. And this will foreshadow the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I also established my covenant with them. Look at verse 4 to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. Now the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, lived as aliens in a land of promise, but they did not realize the promise. The promise would be realized in the future. And it would be really realized through the next generation, the generation beyond Moses. And that was largely because of the issue of unbelief. And so they wandered in the desert, And they wandered in their unbelief. But God had a plan. And that plan would be realized as Joshua would take them them across. And furthermore, verse 5, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because of the Egyptians, because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage. And I have remembered my covenant. Now, God does not forget things like we do. As I get older... Uh, Things are going out of my mind a little bit more readily than before. Anybody uh, about my age starting or beyond starting to realize this? Uh, It usually finds itself in names. Like actors and baseball players that I could just bring up at a moment's notice. Oh yeah, that's the second baseman for so-and-so. That's his name and oh no. That's not happening anymore. Uh (laughs) So uh, thank God for a new body that is coming, a new brain that is coming as well. But God does not say, oh yeah, Israel's been in bondage for a couple hundred years. We got to do something about that. That's not what's going on here. It's that the the word remember means it's now time to act. What I have promised, I will now act upon. And in life, this is sometimes how it works. We We set a date for something, and that date may be far off into the future. It will be realized at some point, whether it's a wedding date or whatever. And God now is going to actualize his promises as his covenant will be kept. And then we move to the four cups. Say, therefore, to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. This is the first cup during the Seder meal. Now, what I uh, did with these slides, and maybe we can move to that first one, is I wanted you to see there's the four cups uh, that are spoken in the two verses, and then we can move to the next slide for a second. And here is the first cup. It's called the cup of sanctification. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And there's a statue of a Hebrew slave in Egypt. The first cup is the cup of sanctification, This is a cup that is shared at the Seder Passover meal to remember. And when we take the Lord's Supper in the modern church and we come to the table and we take the matzah and the grape juice, we remember. What do we remember? We remember that we were once under the burden of sin. And some of you grew up in the church, but I did not necessarily walk with the Lord my whole childhood. I had some foundation that was given to me by my mom and my grandma, but we kind of moved away from that, and I found myself under the burden of a lot of things that I had created. And sin in the Bible is pictured as a weight that falls on your life. It ends up being a burden. Sometimes it's painted to us like it's gonna be something cool and exciting, But what looks so fun and exciting at the beginning can often become a burden in our lives. And so this first cup is the cup of sanctification. When we talk about being sanctified, we often say sanctified means to be set apart. And you can think of this as being repositioned by God. You are under the burden of sin, and he lifts that off of you and sets you free. Put your feet now upon solid ground. Christ fulfills these cups, and they have an application to our lives as believers because we have been, you know, oftentimes when people get saved, they describe feeling like a weight came off of their shoulders, and that's the weight of sin. Isaiah 53 pictures Jesus as taking our burdens upon him, carrying the weight of our sin, and he carried it down the Via Dolorosa, which we will look at during the uh, Passion Week. And Jesus could have ended it, but he did it in obedience to his father. He carried the cross. He took the cat of nine tails. He endured that terrible suffering. He he was whipped. You know, the the, uh, Hebrew slaves in Egypt were whipped by taskmasters. Jesus was whipped over and over and over again. And when Jesus stepped into this world, he stepped in to take our spot. To put himself under the burden to relieve us of the burden. This is what we call the vicarious atonement of Christ or the great exchange of the cross. Jesus, though innocent, bears our burden. He puts himself under the weight, the penalty of sin. He never sinned himself, but he, he steps in to be the substitute for us. And so here is the cup of sanctification. Jesus, by the way, honored these cups as he ate the Passover meal with his disciples and he would have done it as a faithful Jew over and over again. He says in Luke twenty-two fourteen, I have earnestly, 15, desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And so Jesus shared in these cups and he was the fulfillment of these cups. And his bride, the church, was sitting at that table. Now there was one who didn't belong to him, that was Judas, but his bride was there. And Ray Vanderlaan's done a series with Focus on the Family and he has taught on this idea of the dowry. And here's what would happen in the ancient world when you were, gonna, um, you were gonna approach a prospective bride, you would show up at her home and you would show up with a bag of money and a bottle of wine and some paperwork. And you would be looking very suspicious as you came to ring the doorbell. But this would have been worked out before and the two dads would haggle over something called a dowry. And the dowry was the price for the bride. Ray Vanderlaan says that it's roughly equivalent to what you would pay for a home today. woo! And all God's people said, oh, I'm glad things have changed. (laughs) Anyway, so they would would haggle over it. And once they agreed, the father of the prospective groom would pour a cup of wine. Wine in Jewish thought represented life and joy. The prospective groom would offer it to the prospective bride. And she had a moment of decision. If she took the cup to her lips and drank from it, she was saying, I receive your life captured in the wine, and I give you back my own. When Jesus was at the Last Supper, and he transformed the Passover meal into what we call the Last Supper, he passed the cup. He passed the cup of redemption. And when each disciple drank from it, I think they knew what was going on. They were saying, "Life, Lord, we receive your life captured in the wine, and we give you back our own. And Ray Vanderlaan beautifully says, Jesus, in essence, at the Last Supper, was saying to the disciples, will you marry me? Will you be my bride? Will you be my family? And there was something deep going on that night that I think the disciples maybe didn't fully realize all the angles. And maybe we don't either when we come to the table or when we take another step towards the Lord and maturing in our walk. Or maybe the diamond turns a little bit more on the, the gospel that we've embraced in our lives. It's, it's deep. And so <clears throat> the scholars have also said to pay attention to the I will statements in these verses. There's seven of them. There's four cups, but seven I will statements. Take a look at the verse again. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, six, I am the Lord, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Now that is the cup of sanctification, but you'll notice that it is God doing the work. Unless God had intervened, there would be no deliverance. So the cup of sanctification is also known as the cup of consecration. I will bring you out. I will do the work. It's a promise of liberation from under the burdens of the Egyptians, out and free. The word for church in Greek is ekklesia, and it literally means the called out one. So if you're a Christian today, the name church means to be called out. Called out of the world. Egypt is a type or a picture of the world. And called to Christ. And scholars have pointed out that the promised land or Canaan is more a picture of the walk of the believer than it is of heaven. Because we can see that in the wilderness wanderings and all the struggle that they went through. That, could be debated, but you kind of get the picture there. So God says, I'm gonna bring you out. I'm gonna bring you out of there and to myself. Galatians 3.22 says these words. But the scripture has shut up all men under, hoopo, under sin. It's the idea of all people are under the weight of a huge, massive boulder of sin. And it says that the promise by faith, Galatians 3.22, in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The scripture has declared the whole world to be prisoners in subjection to sin. Sometimes people, you know, they hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ and they say something like this. Well, that's good for you. And if that's what you need, then fine. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says the whole world is under the burden of sin. And the further picture here is that we are caught in a massive net. The word shut up, But the scripture is shut up all men under sin is a word for enclosing a bunch of fish within a net. And so when you round out the picture, it's this picture of the whole world under this burden of sin and crammed in a fishing net. All of us are in the same net. Sometimes we have a saying, we're all in the same boat. Well, we're all in the same net because of what sin does. Sin separates us from God and sin must be judged because God is holy. And this is where Messiah steps in. He takes the wrath of God. He takes the burden of our sin upon himself, carries the weight, if you will, the penalty of our sin. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace fell upon him and by his wounds we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Everyone is turned to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's what's happening during the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. That is the penalty that the Lord is taking, the weight of the sin of the world and the judgment of the Father. There's a beautiful scene in Cecil B. DeMille's movie The Ten Commandments where uh, Moses' mother, unknown to him in the movie uh, Yoshebed, is greasing a massive stone and it's being moved by all these Hebrew slaves to build yet another city for the pharaoh. And uh, her clothing gets caught under this rock as it's moving along. And so one of the ladies in the movie runs and sees what's happening and she says, stop the stone, stop the stone. And they're like, we're not stopping the stone for an old woman, no way. And she goes, run, run to the Prince Moses. And so she, she runs uh, up there and finally you know, gets his attention and he agrees to come down. And he kneels before this woman. And in the movie, this is just the movie, he doesn't know it's his mom. And he kneels down and, and he says to the Egyptian taskmasters, would you bury her in a tomb of rock? And they kind of smirk. And she kneels before, he kneels before his mother and he says, what happened? And she goes, it was caught. My clothing was caught and I couldn't free myself. And he said, you shouldn't be bearing this burden, old woman. And Moses becomes a Messiah figure. Interestingly enough, in the movie, comes to the rescue of his own mom. This is what Messiah does. He comes to our rescue. We're caught under the rock of sin. We can't free ourselves. We need a deliverer. Moses will end up being a deliverer. He will become, he is, a type of Jesus Christ. We're caught in the net. We cannot free ourselves. Blessed be the Lord. Psalm 66:19, who daily bears our burden, the God who is our salvation, Selah. God is to us a God of deliverances. Psalm sixty six twenty. The second cup, if we can move in the next slide, is the cup of deliverance. The cup of deliverance. There's the second cup, and the image there is the Lord breaking our chains. And so remember, we are moving through the cups of the Seder meal, but they have direct application to us as believers. And again, we have an I will statement. I will deliver you. Verse six. Three cups in verse six. From their bondage, I will free you, NIV, from being slaves to them. This is the cup of deliverance. This is just something that you can write down. I'm going to read it for you. Romans 6, 4 through 6 says, Therefore we have been buried with Christ through baptism into death. We saw that picture with all those being baptized today. In order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Now the Lord is the Spirit. Here's the Bible verse for the National Day of Prayer this year, 2 Corinthians 3.17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is... Liberty or freedom, that's right. The Lord sets us free. He's not just gonna remove the burden. He wants you to walk in deliverance. He wants you to walk in freedom. If the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. But some of us are still walking work like we're slaves. We, some of us are buying tickets and setting up caravans to go back to Egypt, just like the the Hebrews did when, the, when things got a little bit tough. Oh, we're going back. I'm sick of the manna. How many times can you eat manna in a week, man? I mean, come on. <laughs> That's just a joke with an Italian bent. <laughs> Revelation 1.5 says, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, listen to this, to him who loves us, and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. amen. That's not the end of the sermon, but that's a good place for an amen. <laughs> now the third cup in verse six is called the cup of redemption. So God breaks our chains and he also redeems us. This is the cup. That Jesus instituted the new covenant. This is the new covenant in my blood. You've heard about the cup of redemption. Well at the Seder meal this is the particular cup that Jesus says drink from it all of you. This is the new covenant in my blood. This supplants or it is the better covenant to the old but it's pictured in the Seder. And again, you have the the I will statement. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, with God's mighty arm, and with great judgments. The third cup is the cup of redemption. Isaiah 54, 5 says, For your husband is your maker, whose name is Yahweh of hosts, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. What does redemption mean? Well, redemption is a word in in Greek and Hebrew which literally means to purchase with a price or to buy back. And it's pictured in a book of the Bible that I think many of you are familiar with, the book of Hosea. And let me just paint the picture for you quickly without us turning there. Hosea was a prophet of God, and he was prophesying, I think, during the 8th century BC. And there was the threat of Assyrian invasion and The people of Israel were loved by God, but they continued to be wayward. And so God instructed Hosea the prophet to go and marry what some versions of scripture seem to imply was a prostitute, a woman that was wayward, a woman that would commit adultery against him. And he was instructed with his eyes wide open to go and marry a woman that would not be true to him. And so he goes and marries her and offspring come into the picture. And at some point in that relationship, she leaves him. Some commentators, no joke, believe that she has gotten herself involved in prostitution and a pimp, what we call a modern day pimp, is now in control of her life. And so Hosea is called to go and buy her back. And she's married to him, so he has every right, right? But she's gotten herself in a web of sin and she's actually in some form of prostitution or slavery. And so Hosea goes to the slave market and purchases his wife back and redeems her back to himself. And when she comes home, he says to her, please don't cheat on me anymore. And some of us ask the question, why would God ever ask a holy prophet of his to marry a prostitute, knowing what she would do. And the whole thing is outlined in scripture to become a picture of God's relationship with Israel, that though he loves Israel and he continues to reach out with his love to her, she is enamored with idols and she continues to commit spiritual adultery against him. And God says, Hosea, I want you to walk in my sandals now. Everybody's concerned about looking at life from their perspective. I want you to see my perspective. Here's my perspective. I bought this people, I love them, and they continue to cheat on me. But I want you to go and buy them, buy her back. And I want you to tell her that you love her and that you're not going to give up on her. And I know there's theology, you know, that's out there that, you know, the church has replaced Israel and, and God's not working. Uh, uh, in literal, physical Israel anymore. I beg to differ. I think the Bible makes it very clear that God is working and will work in the future in the actual, physical nation of Israel. And I think the whole picture of Scripture is undeniable that that's the case. The church is grafted in, no doubt, to those promises, praise God. But God will always be true to the promises that he has made to his people. But it's not been without bumps and bruises. It's not been without tough love, amen? And by the way, the same thing that happened with Israel applies to the church. Yes, we're in the new covenant, but God still disciplines his children, and that's because he loves you. So, daddy does spank, but he does it because he loves you. He doesn't want you to be wayward because he knows if you go off, to back to the idols, back to that lifestyle. It's just gonna put you back in bondage, and he wants you to be free. free. See, he's redeemed you with a price, not silver and gold, but the precious blood of Jesus Christ, without spot, without blemish. Don't forget who you are. Now, this word ga'al in Hebrew, the, the, uh, the word for redeem means to buy back what was originally one's own. And the root is the idea of a kinsman redeemer. And this is seen in the book of Ruth, where, uh, what's the guy's name again? See, this is names again. Say it again. Boaz, Boaz, thank you. (laughs) You guys are all saying it at the same time, like, ah, what? Anyway, (laughs) Boaz, see, I told you with the names thing. Anyway, but he steps in. And he becomes the kinsman redeemer. And you can see that in Ruth chapters three and four. And Boaz is a, t- a type of Christ. And so he pays the ransom. You have three cups, the I wills, you can see the buying back. We have been bought with a the price. Therefore glorify God in your body. 1 Corinthians six nineteen says you've been bought with a price. Glorify God in your body. Sometimes, you know, you, you get the idea that contemporary Christians don't think that holiness is that big of a deal. And while it is true that we're not gonna be perfect and we're gonna fall short, and that's why we need grace, holiness is something we should pursue because we've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. That's a response to the price that's been paid for you. You don't earn your salvation, but you respond to what God has done by saying, Lord, I offer myself as a living sacrifice. I know it's not easy. I I know that this world beats against this idea of holiness, but do you wanna swim with the tide? That's easy. The old saying is any dead fish can float downstream. All you gotta be is dead. (laughs) And you can go with the flow of this world, but I would argue that there are many believers, sadly, that are running right down that river with the world and haven't stepped out of it and realized their freedom. You have the power to be free, the power to walk in newness of life. It is going to be a process, but it is within you. And then the fourth cup, I will take you for my people, literally, this is verse seven. Just take note again of the I wills. I will take you for my people, Literally, I will take you to me or myself as my people. I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. The fourth cup, if we can move to that one, is the cup of acceptance. And the cup of acceptance has two uh, primary metaphors or images that I wanna just put before you. One is of adoption, But the major theme here seems to be marriage. It's a marriage metaphor. When we say a metaphor, we're just talking about a picture, right? And so when it says, I will take you as my people and I will be your God, this is the idea of becoming his in a marriage picture. Adoption fits as well, but here it is a picture of marriage. And this is the fourth and final cup I'd like to put before you. The language appears, says one scholar to derive from marriage and adoption formulas found in Israelite and ancient Near East, and the ancient Near Eastern world. Talking to my rabbi friend, Robert, this last week, I was kind of picking his brain on some of these images, and he said, you know, Pastor Michael, he said, really, what we have here in the fourth cup, this cup of acceptance or this covenant marriage, is the idea that when Israel moves into the wilderness, they're on their honeymoon. And, uh, Pastor Matthew and Priscilla just got married. Many of you were here for that wedding. Were you here for that wedding? Raise up your hand. Wasn't that a fun time? And then they went on their honeymoon. And he's not back at work yet, and I'm angry. Uh, No, I'm just just kidding. Now, I think that this is worth turning to. And I'm going to ask you to hold your place in Exodus and turn to Jeremiah. So you're going to pass up the Psalms and... Isaiah, go to Jeremiah chapter 2. I'm going to show you just a couple verses here. But I I think this is worth us turning and taking a look at because this is just so beautiful. And remember, Jeremiah is largely a bummer book. Uh, It's all about judgment. And (laughs) yeah. But I want you to see this image of acceptance in the marriage picture as you look with me at Jeremiah 2 verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. And I'm going to read from the NIV because I just love the way that this is rendered. I remember the devotion of your youth, Jeremiah 2.2, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the desert, through a land not sown. Israel is pictured in Jeremiah 2.2 as one devoted to their God, a bride newly married to her husband in love and off to the desert they went on their honeymoon and as they wandered into the, into the desert, sadly, it didn't go really well. And I wanna take you to Jeremiah 31 for a second and as you turn there, I think we all realize, those of us who are married, that we get married, we, we say vows we, in, we enter into what we call a covenant. We say, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, as long as we both shall live. With God as my witness, I give you my promise. And then we go off on a honeymoon, and that's usually pretty fun. And then the desert of this world becomes a reality, right? It's not easy. Marriage is the school of discipleship, it's really where you learn to practice agape love. And you gotta learn it. Love is patient, love is kind. Love, agape love means you love as a decision of your will, not for what you're gonna get back. You just love because that's what agape does. And this is also pictured in the prodigal son when Jesus tells the story in Luke 15 about the prodigal leaving home and wandering in the world and becoming broken and ending up in the mud pit of his own sin and rehearsing then a speech, coming to his senses. I'll go back to my father. I'll say, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And the father says, oh, no. No, 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 you are my son. And he hugs him and puts a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and a robe on him and throws a party. This son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was wandering in the desert and he's come home. Look, marriage is not easy, but marriage is the school of discipleship. It's where you learn to love with God's love. Did you think God's love was easy? Look at you first thing in the morning. Come on, it ain't pretty. Okay, look at me. Right? Sometimes you're like, God, if you can love this. <laughs> yeah. I often pray, Lord, if you can do anything with this, <laughs> whatever, whatever you can do, you're going to have to fill me with the fruits of the Holy Spirit, with the power of the Spirit, because woo, it ain't pretty this morning. Anyway, uh, we'll keep going. Now, my wife is pretty every morning. That's a whole different story. That's called wisdom, brethren. Anyway. <laughs> no, that's serious. You are. Uh, we digress. Let's it is about marriage, but anyway. Jeremiah 3131 31 says, Behold, 3131. 31. Days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke. I didn't break it, they broke it. Although, what's your Bible say? I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is the same language as we see in the fourth cup. And they shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Back to Exodus, and we'll finish it. The good news of the new covenant. The four cups. By the way, uh, there is a fifth cup called Elijah's cup in the Seder. Uh, they they put that cup out uh, in expectation that Elijah might show up and announce the coming of the Messiah. And there is a land promise in the last couple of verses. We'll we'll move quickly here, but this is uh, six eight. Just note again the I wills. I will bring you to the land which I swore. We talked about the honeymoon imagery to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will, seven I wills, called the seven I wills of salvation, if you're interested. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. You'll notice that the, the, the phrase, I am the Lord, bookends the teaching of the four cups. He started with, I am the Lord, and he bookends it with, I am the Lord, to underscore God's intention to redeem and the connection of his re- redemption to his name, Yahweh. The two final I wills, the promise of possession of the promised land. If you have an NIV, it says, I swore with an uplifted hand. This is an idiom for making a formal promise. If you have an NIV, it would be something like this you're in a court of law, I swear, usually raise your right hand. If you've seen the, now uh... oh, never mind. <laughs> I was gonna go into the Three Stooges, but it's really silly. Have you guys seen that one? Yes. Raise your right hand. Take off your hat. Anyway, never mind. It's, it's not worth even going there. It's just silly. But, <laughs> but it's, it's a way that God is saying, I give you a formal promise. And isn't it interesting that Israel is in the land even today? This is tantamount to saying, I am Yahweh, your covenant God. It's a relational picture of identity. The true church, us, we are grafted in. We are his bride. We've been uh, relieved from the burden of our sins. Canaan is not a picture of heaven, says one writer. It is a picture of the Christian life as believers should be living it. And so we need all the help we can get because it's a battle. And so Moses spoke thus to the sons of Israel. He laid it out, but they did not listen And on account of their despondency and cruel bondage, they were so overwhelmed. They they heard the words, they heard the teaching, they heard how profound it was, but they couldn't seem to believe it because they had been under so many burdens and now making straw, making bricks without straw. And, And I wanna go here because I wanna tell you something that happens. Sometimes you hear these beautiful truths and you don't think they can be for you. And you know why? Because you're under so many burdens. And, and you hear this and you say, oh, that, that works for that person over there and I'm sure God can save and use that person, but not me because I'm under too many burdens and maybe there, some of them are self-created. But the gospel, my friend, is for you. If you're watching right now, it's for you. He came for you. God so loved the world That he gave his only son. He loved the world. He loves you. That whoever believes in him will not perish. They'll have everlasting life. And I want to ask you, do you believe? Have you entered into the new covenant? Have you said yes? You know, when a marriage proposal is put forth, there needs to be a response. And the response is, will you marry me? And the response is, I will. That's how you enter into the covenant. You say I will, I will leave my former life and I will be now bound to you. You are my Lord, you are my God. Now, many of you have said I will to this offer, but some of you haven't. And until you do, you're not married to him and you're not a Christian. That's just the truth. But you can be because he is literally a prayer away. And the biblical gospel says... Repent of your sin and receive Jesus Christ as your Redeemer, as your Lord and Savior, and he will save you. He will not cast out anyone who comes to him in faith. Will you come? If you're not saved, you need to get saved, man, or you're going to remain under the burden of your sin, and you're going to be judged one day because God is holy. But instead of judging us, he judged his son. His Son took our place at the cross. He took our punishment. He took the wrath of the Father. The innocent one who knew no sin became sin for us that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the gospel. And you've got to have a moment where you decide, I will follow Him. He's worth it and so much more. Amen? Amen? So I'm gonna pray. And if you haven't made this decision yet, I invite you, the Lord invites you through the power of his word. Get saved. Bow your heart with me, Father. Thank you for all that's happened today. Thank you for the power of your word. Thank you for the sweet way in which you draw us. Thank you for the the beauty of these four cups Their images that we need to understand, their their offers, their promises, that you say, I'll I'll do this. And Israel wandered in the desert simply because of one thing They, they wallowed in unbelief. Yet you didn't give up on them, just like you don't give up on us, and just like you didn't give up in the image of the prodigal son. Some of you need to come home today. You you already know the Lord, but you've been wandering. So pray with me something like this. Heavenly Father, pray it out loud if it's you. I come to you in the name of Jesus. And I thank you that you, Jesus, came on a rescue mission to save me. Father, thank you for sending your only son Jesus, thank you that you lived that perfect life that I can never live. You fulfilled the law. You did what Israel and what I failed to do. Thank you that you died on that terrible cross for me and experienced the wrath of your father, tasted death for me. Thank you that you rose from the dead defeated death, our mortal enemy. We're so grateful that death is going to die in the resurrection. And Lord, I repent of my sin. And I ask you to save me. Buy me back, redeem me, Lord. Register my name in heaven. Look, you don't have to have a perfect prayer, but God knows your heart. And if you're ready to surrender and follow him, he'll lead you, he'll direct you, he'll guide you. Father, for those who have opened their hearts today and for this precious congregation, you're doing some wonderful things in our midst and we just wanna give you the glory for what you're doing. We pray you'll continue to work. You'll bless each one. There are some that need your healing touch today. There are others who may be struggling emotionally or just under a heavy burden. I pray you'd lift burdens in this room and help us to walk in freedom. Help us to walk in faith. Thank you that you are so faithful. Even when we are faithless, you are faithful. We pray all of this in Jesus' holy name.